Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Genesis 1, 10. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. God has a divine purpose for plants, a divine purpose. What is the purpose for plants? How do we use plants? How do you and I use plants every day? Food, what else? So what? Oxygen. Oxygen. What else? Decorative. Decorative. Yeah. Clothing. Clothing. All right. Lots of different reasons. Food for plants. Food from plants for men and beast. Psalm 116 verse 11 says, At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 103 verse 5, he satisfies you with good things. The ability of plants to produce food is one of the most important and complex biological processes known to scientists. Part of the energy that is given to the earth is used by these amazing machines to work non-stop. In Genesis 1, 29 through 31, God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. Now in Genesis chapter 9, of course, animals were included in that food stock. But Psalm 104 verse 14 tells us that God has caused the earth to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. But it's not just for food itself, it's also for flavor, the wonderful variety of spices and herbs that we have. I mean, I grow different types of herbs on our front porch. We have four big uh, window boxes that we plant with basil. And we love basil pesto. It's just amazing. By the way, if you ever try cilantro pesto, I recommend that as well. But in Numbers, you'll remember that the people leaving Egypt were complaining because they didn't have the leeks, the onions, the garlic. I love garlic. They didn't have that. And they were complaining because that's part of the wonderful provision that God has given us in plants, flavors, for building. Beautiful picture of a little log cabin here. And in Isaiah 60, uh, verse 13, God talks about how from Lebanon, the cedar is being used, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the places of the sanctuary, but also of our homes. Most of our homes, most of this building is built with wood. It was not a metallic stud structure. For building, God gives us plants for building process. As object lessons, God has given us the plants of the field as object lessons. You know that after I read the scriptures publicly, I quote from Isaiah 40, verse 8, the plant withers and the flower fades, but what? The word of the Lord stands forever, right? And also in Psalm 37, 
verses 1 through 40. We're told not to fret ourselves because of the evildoers. Don't be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like what? The grass and the flower of the field, right? God gives us plants for objects lesson that we would see, and not only see his divine character, his attributes, but that we would have object lessons. God is so good. And part of the reason why we're doing this is because this examination of our creator and his creation is not simply for intellectual stimulation. It is for our worship, that we should worship and appreciate how incredible God is in giving us all of these good things. Fragrances, honeysuckle. How many of you can identify the honeysuckle from a distance? Even if you're driving along, all of a sudden you realize there's honeysuckle somewhere. Isn't that wonderful? All the amazing fragrances, the lovely colognes that help us to smell like we just didn't come out of the barnyard and, you know, smell attractive. It's amazing. Exodus 30 describes the incredible use of all of the herbs and spices that God used within the tabernacle for incense, for the anointing oil. And in Song of Solomon, you see the lovers describing the wonderful fragrances, the, uh, the nard, the saffron, the calamus, the cinnamon that are used to enhance their life, the fragrances that God has given us. They are for our pleasure and enjoyment. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So not only the donuts you had, which are made of wheat of the field and the sugar that's frosting them, but when you go to lunch, not to make you all hungry, <laughs> When I would go down to the Evansville Rescue Mission, I would, at harvest time, I would take a bucket of tomatoes and I would have the tomatoes and I would eat them in front of the men and I would have a little bit of salt. And the purpose of the sermon was not to make these men drool, but to illustrate the Bible verse, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I sure gave them out tomatoes afterwards, but he gave us... Plants for clothing, as Deb mentioned. The word linen occurs 104 times in 90 verses, and the word flax occurs 11 times in 10 verses. Flax is a plant that is processed to make linen. The tombs of the pharaohs in Egypt use linen for the mummification process. Joseph in Egypt was clothed in fine linen. Even Jesus himself in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John mentioned the use of this plant-based clothing material in his burial. Also for medicines. There are at least 120 important drugs derived from plants to use in more than, well, over all the countries in the world. The most widely used include ginkgo, uh, turmeric, uh, echinacea, evening prim uh, primrose oil, flaxseed, tea tree oil, grapeseed extract, and lavender, and of course oxygen. I mentioned that in your handout, but I don't have a slide for that. I couldn't find an oxygen molecule to it. Anyway, oxygen. During photosynthesis, green plants use sunlight to change carbon dioxide, which is not a toxin. It is not a poisonous greenhouse gas that we are responsible for and cows are responsible for. It is designed by God as his immaculate recycling effort where the plants turn waters 
from air and water into simple sugars and we produce carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen um, and produce water and air. Well, also for the promise of the future. Plants are used throughout scripture as a promise of the future. You see here a apple grove where there's a street and the apple trees on each side. In Revelation 22 and verse 2, there's a description of the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river. There's a tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, and that bears every single month. That is the ultimate fruit of the month club in Revelation. Ezekiel 47 verse 12 also talks about the fact that on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food their leaves will not wither their fruit will not fail but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water of them flows from the sanctuary their fruit shall be for food and their leaves for healing finally to generate appreciation and thankfulness to god first timothy 4 again tells us that food is created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. He has given us an amazing diversity of plants. Just the flowers alone. There are over 24,000 species of the sunflower family. The orchid family has 20,000 species. The legume or pea family has over 18,000 species. The rose, there are over 300 rose species in the world. Wildflowers, there are over 150 Native American species. California alone has 134 species and varieties. Apples, this is not just the season for pumpkin spice, my friends. This is the season for apples, and if you want to do something kind for your wonderful Sunday school teachers, apple pie. Apple pie. There are over 7,500 varieties of apples in the world, which means, brothers and sisters, if you wanted to have a different apple for every day of the year for 20 years, if you could find them, you would have them without repeating. In the United States alone, there are 2,000 500 species of apples commercially grown, which means that for 10 years, Monday through Friday only, you could have a different apple every day. Isn't God good? And apple pie is good, I'm just saying. Apples, 189,905,800,000 pounds of apples were produced in the United States in 2018. Tomatoes, those of you who are gardeners will appreciate this. 401,902,226,000 pounds of tomatoes were cultivated and produced in the United States, not including your family garden in 2018. Is it a vegetable? Is it a fruit? Talk amongst yourselves. The wonderful design of plants. Plants depend, people depend on plants for food, clean air, water, fuel. We didn't mention fuel earlier. Clothing, medicine, and shelter. The ability of plants to produce food from the sun, photosynthesis, is one of the most important and complex biological processes known to scientists. You see a picture of a leaf here. It's a sun catcher. 
And leaves have an amazing array of mechanisms within the leaf itself. They're each designed with a specific purpose. The surface layer are the security guards, letting in the good stuff and keeping out the bad. The outside has a waxy layer called the cuticle, which protects the inner parts of the leaf. Another clear layer of flat, layer, flat cells called the epidermis allow sunlight to enter but not escape. Turn the leaf over and you'll find tiny little cells that are on the inset of this picture that you see in front of you called stomata. How many of you have seen when a storm is approaching that all of a sudden you look at the trees and you'll see the underside of the leaves? An amazing mechanism that God designed. These stomata regulate the chemicals that flow in and out of the plant. They're specifically designed guard cells that can recognize different molecules. And it all happened by chance. Yeah, I don't think so. Inside the plant cell itself is an amazing array of complex machinery. Tucked beneath, between the protective cuticle layer and the chemical regulating bottom layer are cells that are specifically designed to contain the energy manufacturing chloroplasts. If you look at the middle picture there, the middle image, you'll see a cross-section of an individual cell. The large item in the upper left-hand corner is a nucleus, but in a single cell are the chloroplasts that have efficiently designed stacks. That's that little blue oval image that you see there. And that is where photosynthesis takes place between the carefully controlled margins of those layers. Sunlight, carbon dioxide, water, and energy create this incredible combination within a, a specifically designed factory that is enabled to perform hundreds of steps to convert sunlight into sugar, water, and oxygen. The nucleus itself is unfathomably complex. Chloroplast could not function alone. At the center of each cell is a large nucleus. There are endoplasmic reticuli, little walls, that not only help to convey materials from one part of the cell to the other, but they actually also produce material. You have the mitochondria, small brown bean-shaped bodies, and each of those beans converts the sugar made in the chloroplast into another form of energies that help the cells to use. All of this is swimming in a fluid called protoplasm. The jelly is constantly rotating, and there are specific little waste collection items called vacuoles. And those vacuoles eliminate the waste or byproduct out of the cell. And some of that waste is oxygen. It would be incredible if we could design such a machine. <laughs> It's totally beyond our capability. Photosynthesis is a manufacturing process like none other. Every day, we are surrounded by a caring creator who constantly and abundantly provides for our physical and emotional needs through these marvelous little machines. No wonder Christ pointed to a field of lilies and told his followers they had no reason to worry. Solomon himself was not so arrayed. Why do you worry? 
The unique design and origin of plants is not by evolution. The unique design and origin of plants is not by evolution. Within standard biologic or botanical evolutionary thought is the thinking that plants that were in the water changed into plants that were able to live, function, and process out of the water. So these organisms, these plants, changed or adapted. Now, being a creationist, we have a different idea of adaptation. Adaptation, as you see on your paper, it's a physical trait or behavior due to inherited or designed characteristics that give an organism the ability to survive in a given environment. Now, in the image that you have here in front of you, you see two different types of plants. You have the algae plants, by the way, which produce most of the oxygen in the world, come from seas, not from plants. The entire planet could be denuded and we would still have oxygen from the plants in the oceans. And by the way, lumber companies and paper companies are required in the United States by federal law to replant. So if those people who see the earth as their god shake their fist at the creationists who don't take care of the earth, there's a, there's a problem there. They may not be aware of the requirements for things like timber companies and paper companies. Let's look at this chart. You have the algae living in the water. The algae is supported by the surrounding water. It's anchored to the substrate, but it doesn't permeate the substrate. The whole algae performs photosynthesis, absorbs water, carbon dioxide, and minerals from the water. But if you look at the plant that's outside on the soil, it's different. The shoot system is what supports and feeds the plant. The leaves perform photosynthesis and gas exchange. The stem supports the plant and may also perform photosynthesis. But it's the root system that anchor the plant and absorb water and minerals from this soil. Now here's the tricky part, boys and girls. There is nothing within the DNA, the design of the algae, that would allow it to change into the structures in the land-based plant. The algae is supported by water. The plant on the soil is supported by the stem. The whole algae produces photosynthetic products. The plant has the leaves specialized in design for photosynthesis, and there's also some chlorophyll in the stem. The algae gets all of its materials from the surrounding water. The plant gets all of its materials from the soil and the absorption from the air and the atmosphere.
through the leaves. Different mechanisms, not able to be changed. There is a real problem with the evolutionary thought. In addition, there is a true problem with a very challenging task of creating a phylogenetic tree. A phylogenetic tree is simply a tree that seeks to understand the organization of plants. Different types of plants. Is it a fern? Is it a fungus? Is it algae? Is it a land-based plant bearing seeds? The different phyla, the different categories, are sometimes forced into a structure that is, is used to seek to explain how land-based plants developed. So on the left of what you see in the, in, the, in, in the images in front of you from about 70 years ago are the different types of plants. Now today, the image on the right is a picture of a current estimation of a phylogenetic tree that shows the assumed evolutionary history of plants. I say it's the assumed evolutionary history of plants. Looking at that tree and knowing what we've talked about so far, what would you say could be the major issue that would prevent us tying these different types of plants to one another? It's the same problem that you have in biologic evolutionary theory. Transitionary forms. There is no record of any transition form between one part of the phylogenetic tree and another. It's missing. Instead, you have only evidence of these plants existing for a very long time in their original forms. I think you have a quote there from uh, Dr. Kemp Emeritus, is that correct? Yeah, well you have the Carolus uh, Linnaeus. Carolus Linnaeus was a believer and he said this, the earth's creation is the glory of God as seen from the works of nature by man. And when they use the term nature, they mean God alone. The study of nature would reveal the divine order of God's creation. And it was the naturalist's task to construct a natural classification that would reveal his order in the universe. So the first picture, the one on the left, is the different categories, different types of plants. Was it seed bearing? Was it moss? Was it a fungus? Was it an algae? But we are so brilliant today that we have moved away from that simple categorization into the phylogenetic tree that you see on the right. The creation of plants, Dr. T.S. Kemp uh, said, 
in their many diverse forms is apparent in the intricate design of plant systems. In virtually all cases, a new specimen appears for the first time in a fossil record with most definitive features already present and practically no known stem group forms. There is no transitionary example. The plant all of a sudden exists in the fossil record fully intact. Stephen Jay Gould, the biology professor of Harvard University, would call that punctuated equilibrium, where all of a sudden the species, the organism, exists. There's no transitionary form. It's also called the hopeful monster theory, that all of a sudden they just, where did these guys come from? And it actually points to creation rather than an evolutionary process. That's the major issue. There's another issue. The issue, the problem of living fossils. In my yard, I have a beautiful ginkgo tree. It's, it's wonderful. It has these fan-shaped leaves that you see in the upper left-hand corner of the picture. And around this time of year, they turn a brilliant yellow. And then the best part is that the abscisic acid forms on the stem, the petiole, and they all fall about the same time. It's like you stand underneath, you're taking a leaf shower. It's just wonderful. Now, by the way, you don't want a female ginkgo tree because they produce fruit that smells like carrion. It's just disgusting. We planted one in our house in Newburgh, but you don't know it for 18 years. And all of a sudden, it was, I, I, I saw these fruits and I brought them in to Kim. I said, hey, Kim, our ginkgo's bearing fruit. Can we use this? She looked it up and she said, oh, no. That's why we sold the house and moved to Evansville. So. But for 200 million years, the ginkgo tree has been around. It hasn't morphed into something else. It's been around. The presence of living trees that are virtually identical to fossil species, they're called extant species, like the ginkgo shown, demonstrates the failure of evolution to make useful predictions. Living and extinct trees are proof that evolution can keep things the same for hundreds of millions of years or make drastic changes. Take your pick. It's one or the other. There's another tree that you see there in the upper right-hand corner of the image, and that's the Wollemi pine. It was recently discovered in Australia. The oldest fossils of the plant date to over 90 million years ago. The plastic or flexible theory of evolution must accept that these plants are evidence that evolutionary forces can apparently hold still for millions and millions of years. You see here other pictures. There's a fossil oak right next to the picture of its living specimen from Persia. The plane tree, which is in the middle, in the bottom, uh, that is uh, from southern Germany, that's the fossil, but it's a living tree. In the, uh, in, this, in the bottom right corner of the image, you'll see a plantus or a palm tree. You see the leaf, it's palmate. The fossil, but it's also a living tree that we have in America. And then in the center of this image, you see another oak and it's living specimen found in France exact same trees. 
So evolution apparently was very lazy. There's also another problem, the problem of symbiotic relationships, which evolutionary forces would find it impossible to predict, to create any reasonable expectation. Most exclusive symbiotic relationships exist between plants and insects. If the relationships are dis disturbed, plants either do not survive or are less able to compete. Symbiosis is a close ecological relationship between individuals of two or more different species. The scenario that a complex symbiotic relationship evolved is a catch-22 in evolutionary scenario. If a bee doesn't have a particular shape or size, it can't get to the nectar. But it's the only bee with the right body shape and size and strength to be able to distribute and get to the pollen for the flower. Let's talk about a few examples. The pitcher plant. Creationists often respond to assumptions that certain plants could not have been vegetarian before the fall. As a matter of fact, the pitcher plant that's in the uh, upper right-hand corner there, uh, that's the T-Rex of pitcher plants. Um, it's, you can see how large it is because of the picture of the man's hand next to it. And it looks like a, uh, a commode. And it was assumed that the plant would trap rats because rats were seen around these plants. And it was assumed that the plant would trap rats like a Venus flytrap. And it would trap the rat in this big pitcher. But after further research and study, aside from this evolutionary response that over millions of years the rats and this plant got together and decided that they would ex coexist by the plant eating the rat, it was discovered that in the hood of the plant, and again, you look at the picture, the bowl of the pitcher has this huge leaf on top of it. Well, the nectar that's on top of this leaf is very sweet. So the tree shrews, or the rat, will climb up and take the nectar off, and the body is positioned in such a way that it uses this commode-looking structure to void its body of waste. And so this plant survives because of the waste of this tree shrew. The tree shrew survives because of the energy from the sugary nectar that this plant produces. It's a symbiotic relationship. <clears throat> if you go to the next picture, uh, to the right, uh, that's a particular type of flower called the bottle gentian. The bottle gentian is a very tight budded plant. And bees cannot get into, it has to be a certain size of bee with enough strength to force the flower open to be able to get inside the nectar. The picture to the right of that is the picture of a butterfly on the Turk's cap lily. The Turk's cap lily is not a very substantial flower. The flower actually hangs down and is very weak. If a large beetle or a bee tried to attach itself to be able to get the nectar, the entire flower would fall off. Instead, you have this very light Lepidoptera, this very light butterfly that's able to balance and to extract the nectar, and thus pollinate the flower. It only exists because of this 
relationship between this lightweight butterfly and this carefully designed light plant. Flower scent is also used. Carrion flowers and foul-smelling flowers entice flesh and fecal-loving insects to their foul-smelling blooms by their color, putrid scents, and how they look like rotting flesh. The pawpaw, which is the picture in the lower right-hand corner, is such a plant. It's temperate woodlands in the eastern U.S. They have both male and female reproductive parts, but they're not self-pollinating. The meat-colored petals and fetid aroma of the pawpaw attract carrion flies, like blowflies, blue bottle flies, green bottles. You've seen these flies around. And beetles. And they are the ones who pollinate. Butterflies and bees are not attracted to this flower. The skunk cabbage. You've seen skunk cabbage in the, in the wild? We're, going, we're continuing around in a clockwise motion. To the left of the uh, pawpaw is the skunk cabbage. The skunk cabbage has this hood, and this hood is so designed that when this plant arrives, uh, pops up in the early spring, the hood is so designed that the heat that's built up by the plant activity itself causes the aroma of the flower to grow and to expand. It vaporizes the scent and attracts some of the earliest flying insects in the spring, including flies and beetles. Unique design. And it's the earliest plant that comes out in the spring. There are fungus or mushroom odor flowers, the coca trees. The coca trees have the flowers on the bulk of the tree itself, the, the trunk of the tree. You see the tiny little white leaves, uh, the white and pink flowers there. But they smell like mushrooms, and they attract a particular type of fly, a gnat. And that gnat attempts to lay eggs on what it thinks is a mushroom. And it's guided by the flower's lip and mushroom odor to the flower stigma for pollination. Chocolate comes from these cocoa trees, and there are little flies called midges that are attracted to the fungus. The next picture uh, in the bottom left-hand corner there is the jack-in-a-pulpit. You may have seen those around. Jack-in-a-pulpit has a fungus-like smell, like mushrooms, that attract many tiny insects, particularly fungus gnats and trips. They enter through the tip and are drawn to the pollen. And again, these are the only insects that pollinate these plants. Without those tiny insects, they would not be around. And then, of course, you have fragrant flowers. Fragrant flowers like this western prairie fringed orchid. Pollinating insects are not attracted to the flowers during the daylight. The flowers increase their fragrance at night <clears throat> to attract roaming moths. And the only moths that can pollinate these have an extremely long tongue. And it's a unique tongue that's able to harvest the nectar. And they're the only ones who go to this. Interestingly enough, these plants, the scent can be picked up a half a mile away. <laughs> half a mile away. My lands. How about the yucca moth? The yucca moth in the picture in the center there on the top 
the yucca moth does not have, um, let me see this here, I want to get this right. The adult yucca moth does not need to feed because it is very short-lived. However, the female gathers pollen, which it holds under the chin with help of specialized tentacles. Female yucca moths can detect the smell of other female moths with her antenna, and if another one has been at this flower, she goes to another flower. She lays a few of her eggs in each uh, selected ovary of the yucca flower. Then she removes some of the pollen from under her chin and deposits on the stigma. And it all happened by chance. <laughs> so she pollinates the flower so that the fruit will grow and the fruit is food for her larvae that hatch from the eggs. The scotch broom, the scotch broom, which is the yellow flower that you see there. 80 species native to Eurasia, North Africa. Some have been uh, brought into the United States. Each flower must be visited by an appropriate pollinator for fertilization to take place. So the mutualistic relationship, the benefit between the honeybee and the scotch bloom is essential. Other native North American insects seem to ignore the scotch bloom, but the bees that were imported from Eurasia and North Africa are the only ones that pollinate this plant. It's amazing. How many of you enjoy figs? How many of you know that if you're eating a fig, you're probably eating a part of a wasp? Yeah. Wasps are pollinated by, uh, sorry, figs are pollinated by wasps. Fig wasps are responsible for pollinating almost 1,000 species of figs. Figs are unusual fruits as the flowers are actually inside the immature fruit. When the female flowers, the inside the uh, immature fruit, they're ready for pollination. The fig, fig fruit, say that five times fast, emits an enticing odor that attracts only female wasps of a specific type for that tree. Fig wasps enter through a tiny pore to mate, lay eggs, and pollinate the tiny flowers. Eggs mature inside the future seeds that will nourish the female wasp progeny and she spreads pollen collected from the previous fig where she was born. Female wasps die inside the fig. So bring on the figgy pudding. But they have gained a reproductive resource from the fig fruit. Some fig trees require the services of one specific species of wasp. How many of you are going to rush out and buy some figs this morning? <laughs> uh, well, brothers and sisters, what's our conclusion? What is our conclusion here? Our conclusion is this. That plants and pollinators work together under God's original design. Some species, you have to agree, have a very unique harmonious relationship, a symbiotic relationship, 
that could not have risen randomly. The variation within each of God's created kinds is truly amazing. So all of this, again, we're not going to remember all of this stuff. But if nothing else, we should remember the wonder, the splendor, and the majesty of our Creator. Millions and millions of years could not allow for these species of plants or insects to have randomly changed and exist today. Romans 1.20 says this, for by the invisible things of him from the creation of the world, they're clearly seen being understood through that which is made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says this, He made everything beautiful in his time. He also has set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God made from the beginning to the end. One of our favorite commentators, and if you don't have a copy of his commentary in the whole Bible, I recommend you get it. Matthew Henry said this, There is a wonderful harmony in the divine providence and all its disposals, so that the events of it, when they come to be considered in their relationships and tendencies, together with the seasons of them, will appear very beautiful to the glory of God, and the comfort of those who trust in him. We are to believe that God has made all beautiful. Everything is done well. As in creation, so in providence. And we shall see it when the end comes. But till then, we are incompetent judges of it. So man professes to be wise, but comes to foolish decisions and conclusions. We instead trust in the Lord our God, not because we're so brilliant, but because He is merciful and He is good. I have a few minutes. I want to show you some more pictures. That's our conclusion. The mimicry, the design is just incredible. The skull orchard in the upper left-hand side Looks just like a skull. The swaddled baby orchard to its right looks like a baby in swaddling clothing. The parrot flowers, two examples of them there. Let's bring the lights down a little bit, can we, please? I think the pictures will be easier to be seen that way. Thank you. Parrot flowers. The moth orchid, which looks incredibly like a moth and it attracts moths for pollination. The Japanese egret there looks like a flying egret. Hibernia radiata. The bee orchid in the bottom uh, left-hand corner there looks just like a bee, and bees approach it to mate and thus pollinate the flower. There are bird orchids and duck orchids there are green squid orchids, monkey face orchids. Did I have monkey face? No, I did not. There are monkey face orchids. Look that up. Yeah. Look up the monkey face orchids. It's amazing. God's incredible design. All right. It's 947. I'm stunned that I actually finished early. 
Any questions, any observations? I'm not that good a teacher. You, I must have put you all to sleep. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible design. You are due the glory. You are worthy of the glory. Our hearts are slow to respond to the majesty that you display in the creativity and the design of these plants that you have given for us to freely enjoy for our benefit and to reflect your incredible character in nature. Thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that we would come away more in awe of you, that Christ would be exalted. Help our hearts to be prepared to worship you as we gather with your people now, that our praise would be acceptable and beloved. And we praise you in his name. Amen.